Well, let me add my, add my thanks to all those that have been extended already to the marvelous staff of the Howenstein Center. And uh, let me add a word of thanks of my own, and that is to, to all of you uh, in this room who probably had any number of, of interesting and appealing ways to spend your Friday, but chose to spend them um, this way. My title, or my topic, I should say, is, is, is Vice President Cheney, Dick Cheney. Now, the word meteoric, you know, the, the bright glowing object sort of streaking through the sky, the word meteoric is not the first word that comes to mind for most people when they think of Richard B. Cheney. Um, in books that have been written about the Bush administration, you see nouns uh, associated with him like gravity, uh, seriousness, prudence. You see adjectives associated with Cheney in these, Cheney in these books like opaque, subdued, taciturn, unflappable, meteoric with its connotations of energy and action and dazzle, um, probably not. Yet consider, in 1968, at the age of 27, Richard B. Cheney was a struggling graduate student in political science at the University of Wisconsin. Seven years later, he was the White House Chief of Staff in the Ford administration, the youngest by far before or since to occupy that role. When Ford lost his bid for, for election in 1976, Cheney went home and two years later ran for the U.S. House of Representatives from Wyoming, was elected freshman member of the House. Within 10 years, he was the second ranking Republican in the U.S. House of Representatives. Meteoric beginning to sound like about the right word. Um, having ascended to the top in the White House and in Congress, Cheney became head of a major cabinet department when President George Bush appointed him Secretary of Defense in 1989. He held that position during the Gulf War, the war that drove Saddam Hussein's Iraqi army out of Kuwait in 1991. When Bush was defeated for re-election in 1992, Cheney hung his hat for a while at the American Enterprise Institute as a senior fellow while preparing to seek the 1996 Republican presidential nomination. After campaigning widely for his party's candidates in the uh, 1994 midterm, Cheney decided, quote, I really don't want to go do it, meaning run for president. He abandoned his candidacy, soon became president of the Halliburton Company, Five years later, at the age of 59, Cheney was elected vice president of the United States. And so, meteoric, not the word that instantly comes to mind in connection with Dick Cheney, but perhaps the word that should. Within the span of a quarter century, Cheney occupied a host of important leadership positions as he advanced from youth to middle age, serving prominently in all but the judicial branch of government, as well as in the corporate world. The same less than obvious uh, word may be applied to the vice presidency. For many years, the office was the butt of jokes and gibes. Cheney himself, in 1996, called being vice president, quote, a cruddy job. Uh, and yet, at the same time that Cheney was engaged in his own meteoric rise, the vice presidency was experiencing its own steep ascent. He inherited, when he became vice president, a strong office. 
the birth of the modern vice presidency is, is usually traced to 1976 when Democratic nominee for president Jimmy Carter selected Walter Mondale as his running mate, and then in 1977 when Carter and Mondale worked out an arrangement for their relationship that gave the vice president uh, a dramatically enhanced role in the administration. Carter established the modern pattern of vice presidential selection when well in advance of his party's national convention, he began a careful search for a running mate. In choosing Mondale, Carter gave the nod to someone who was more experienced in public life than he was. And that's a pattern that has held forth um, uh, consist not, not consistently, but frequently ever since. Ronald Reagan, when he chose George Bush as his running mate, Michael Dukakis, when he chose Lloyd Benson, Bill Clinton when he chose Al Gore, uh, and of course George W. Bush when he chose Cheney, a, a presidential candidate choosing a vice presidential candidate with a more impressive resume, if you will, of having held prominent government offices. Um, I don't think there's ever been a vice president, though, uh, who, in effect, chose himself. Um, Bush asked Cheney, who he got to know when Cheney was in, in, in moved to Texas uh, as part of his association with the Halliburton Company. Cheney, who didn't know George W. Bush um, very well, thought it was a good thing to do for a major corporate president to get to know the governor of the state, went over and introduced himself. Obviously, they had a lot of common connections um, from the past. In late 1998, when Bush was thinking of running for president in 2000, uh, Cheney became part of a group of foreign policy experts who advised and to a large extent educated Bush about global affairs um, as he prepared to, to, to make that candidacy. And Bush later recalled this about Cheney during that process of getting to know him at foreign policy briefings while he was mulling his candidacy for president. Bush said he didn't speak a lot. But the one guy that pretty much commanded, I felt, the respect of everyone around the table during these meetings was Cheney. And so he got my attention. Uh, Cheney told Bush several times that he was not interested in being vice president. Did he mean it, or was he coyly playing hard to get? The question arises because Cheney also persuaded Bush that the ideal running mate uh, would have a record of prominent service in the White House, Congress, the private sector, and as head of an executive department. None of the other possibilities came close to meeting um, these criteria. In an even more important way, even more important departure from modern vice presidential selection, Bush chose someone who had no remaining presidential ambitions. Cheney had tested the waters once in 1996. He found that he was, quote, uncomfortable with the pressure to reveal his feelings and talk about his family. Does that sound like the Dick Cheney you know? Um, between 1978 and 1988, he had three heart attacks. He had another one uh, just weeks after the 2000 election. By temperament, Cheney was someone who was most comfortable outside the spotlight. When uh, he was in the Ford administration, his Secret Service code name was almost comically apt, backseat. Of all the heroes to emerge from the first Gulf War, Cheney was the only one not to write a self-serving memoir. Bush found Cheney's uh, reticence, his lack of 
further ambition for the presidency enormously appealing. Bush said at one time, when you're, when you're getting advice from somebody, if you think deep down that part of that advice is to advance a personal agenda, you discount that advice. For all Cheney's uh, seniority, he always showed deference to Bush. Yes, Mr. President. No, Mr. President. When Bush wasn't around, he referred to him as the man, as in the man wants this. Bush frequently declared that in picking a running mate, he was choosing a vice president, not just a candidate for vice president, to help him win the election. Mark my words, Bush said in June of 2000, there will be a crisis in my administration, and Dick Cheney is exactly the man you want at your side in a crisis. In truth, Bush's emphasis on Cheney's governing credentials doubled as a shrewd electoral strategy. Good government and good politics were going hand in hand here. Voters wanted to be reassured that as a governor, Bush would have at his side an experienced Washington hand with a deep foreign policy resume. Cheney's presence on the ticket provided this reassurance to the voters. Well, famously, the 2000 election did not end on election day. Cheney was given, during the period of uncertainty, a governing rather than a political assignment to run the transition process, vetting prospective cabinet and staff appointees on the assumption that the election would be resolved favorably. Although no previous vice president had ever run a transition, the decision to have Cheney run Bush's made sense. Cheney had participated in two previous uh, presidential transitions, and he had served as a cabinet and staff member at a high level. A part of what's going on during the transition process is, is Bush, with Cheney uh, taking the lead, is choosing his administration. Bush had already made clear that he wanted Colin Powell to be his secretary of state. Cheney and Powell had obviously served together, worked together closely during the first Bush presidency, the Gulf War in particular, but over the years, their, their, their views of the world, their views of foreign policy had diverged. Cheney had, had become much more hardline in his thinking, Powell much more oriented to diplomacy. So given that, that Colin Powell was going to be Secretary of State in the Bush presidency, it was of vital importance to Cheney that Powell be surrounded and to some extent outnumbered by other foreign policy heavyweights who shared his own uh, view of things, and in particular, uh, the appointment of, of his mentor, Donald Rumsfeld, as Secretary of Defense. Indeed, Cheney was able during this transition process to plant allies throughout the administration in, the, in, in OMB, in the Environmental Protection Agency, in the Interior Department, not just at the cabinet level, not even mostly at the cabinet level, but two and three rungs below the cabinet level. The Vice President was also part of a small group that throughout the Bush presidency, reviewed candidates for federal judicial appointments uh, to appraise their conservative credentials. In terms of the role that Cheney would play as vice president, he brought a unique perspective to the office. He was the only vice president who had worked in close proximity to a previous vice president. When Cheney was Ford's chief of staff, the vice president was Nelson Rockefeller, and Cheney had seen Rockefeller thwarted time and again, often by Cheney himself, in his clumsy efforts to take charge of, of domestic policy in the Ford administration. Cheney learned what it was like 
um, to outmaneuver a vice president who was who was sort of stepping forward prominently, uh, pursuing his own brief. And Cheney understood from that 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 is not how you become an influential uh, vice president. What he did obtain from George W. Bush was an unprecedented mandate, uh, granting him access to, as Cheney himself put it, every table and every meeting that took place throughout the administration. This freedom to be active in, in whatever area he wanted to be um, active. Informing his own staff, Cheney signaled where his main interest uh, in public policy lay. He appointed longtime uh, associate Scooter Libby as chief of staff and, and national security advisor to the vice president. And he appointed David Addington as general counsel. Both men had spent several years working with Cheney on foreign and defense matters when he was in Congress and in the Defense Department. Cheney also doubled from 6 to 12 the size of the Vice President's national security staff. Um, and wise in the ways of the White House, he, at the front end, obtained for his leading uh, assistance a place at the table when White House, when presidential assistants, gathered for their meetings. Um, Cheney, um, from the start, met regularly, not just with the National Security Council, but also, again, uniquely for a vice president, with the NSC's principles committee, that is, the National Security Council, when the president is not present. The president wasn't there very often, but Cheney was almost always there. Taking his cues from George W. Bush, however, Cheney's initial focus was on domestic policy. Uh, from the start, he played a vital role in making and promoting the administration's taxing and spending policies. He helped forge a compromise on Capitol Hill between the $1.6 trillion tax cut that Bush wanted and the $1.25 trillion tax cut that Congress initially was, was willing to give uh, the president. Cheney brokered that compromise that brought it in at a little over one and a third uh, trillion. He chaired, Cheney chaired an annual budget review so that um, anyone within the cabinet who was unhappy with with the budget that the Office of Management and Budget had assigned his department for the coming year uh, could go to Cheney and, and, and make that appeal. Theoretically, they could then go to President Bush if they didn't like what Cheney said, but they all knew that there was no point in going to President Bush if Cheney gave them an answer that they didn't want because Bush would back him up uh, entirely. In addition to taxing and spending, Cheney arranged for all legislation passed by Congress to pass through his office so that it could be vetted before it reached uh, the president's desk. Cheney also worked hard to advance his pro-business, pro-development environmental policies throughout the executive branch, widely connected in Washington. Someone once pointed out that Cheney was one of the very few Republicans who love government, who, who don't think of, of Washington as populated by bureaucrats who, who just couldn't make it in, in, in the private sector if they had to. Cheney was somebody who loved the workings of government. Republicans tend not to love the workings of government, and therefore they don't stay long enough to figure out how things operate deep down in the bowels of the bureaucracy. Cheney has never talked pejoratively about bureaucrats. He loves government and, and, and was able, for that reason, to know when an issue of concern to, to say, a, a private corporation supportive of the Republican Party. 
came to his attention and involved something going on deep down in the, in, in, in the middle ranks or lower ranks of the Environmental Protection Agency. Cheney knew who to call and knew what to say to maximize the chances that the decision would go his way. There aren't many Republicans who care enough about the workings of the federal government to give themselves that kind of education. Now notice, everything I'm talking about involves a vice president who was enormously influential in the White House and throughout the executive branch, and to some extent in Congress, before 9-11. We think of Cheney as somebody who, who sort of came to life after 9-11 and then uh, became more and more powerful as the Iraq war was being complemented. It's true to some extent, but understand from day one, Dick Cheney was, um, was working uh, influentially within the administration across its full range of, of activities. Um, Cheney's most prominent assignment before September 11th was to lead the task force on energy policy. Concerned that the task force's deliberations remain confidential, his counsel, David Addington, um, advised Cheney that the membership of this task force should consist entirely of government officials because that freed the task force from the requirements of the Federal Advisory Commission Act. So when Congress's investigative arm, the General Accounting Office, asked to review uh, the task force's records, Cheney refused. Now, why, why, Cheney, why did Cheney refuse any sort of access to the Energy Task Force's operations, even a list of, of people who were involved in, in offering their testimony before it. It's not that there was any surprise when this task force came out with pro-oil drilling recommendations. There was nothing about that that should have surprised anybody. We almost have to look back to Cheney's years in the White House to understand why he wanted to lay down such a strong marker to Congress about the uh, uh, integrity, the, the, the institutional insulation of the White House from Congress. Uh, when Cheney was in the Ford White House, Congress was in the midst of its post-Watergate frenzy of reigning in what was then called the Imperial Presidency. Uh, right after Reagan was elected in 1980, the incoming White House Chief of Staff, James Baker, sought Cheney's advice about how to do this job as Chief of Staff. He was the first, Baker was the first White House Chief of Staff since Cheney. They sat down together and Baker made notes on what Cheney told him that include this statement, by the way, with six stars next to it in Baker's notes. Cheney told Baker, the president has been seriously weakened in recent years. Restore power and authority to the executive branch. Need strong leadership. Get rid of the War Powers Act. Restore independent rights. This was the lesson that Cheney took out of his time, his first time in the White House during the Ford administration. And that is that somebody needs to stick up for presidential power because Congress is going to be a constant and, and, and vigilant threat to it. So when he came into the White House, again, long before 9-11, long before Iraq, Cheney was committed toward enhancing not just the power of the presidency, power in the sense of getting, getting done what the president wants done, but rather the, the integrity of the presidency against what Cheney saw as extra-constitutional, even unconstitutional encroachments by the other branches on the presidency. And so having spent this much time on Cheney before 9-11, um, the less familiar part 
of the story. I'm going to gloss pretty quickly over over what I think is much more familiar to you and what's been alluded to um, throughout uh, this conference. By the way, it's hard to imagine a conference on any previous president in which the vice president would have been as mentioned as often as Cheney has been in this one. Uh, that tells you something right there. Um, Cheney, 9-11, um, uh, within a few days there was a, an important meeting at Camp David at which, at which the discussion was about what to do. Cheney, I should say at this stage, was among those who resisted the argument that the United States should go after Iraq in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. It's not that Cheney didn't have Iraq and Saddam Hussein in his sights, but what he realized at the outset was one military engagement at, at a time. And so Cheney, at the beginning at least, was one of those who, in terms of where uh, President Bush should make his initial response to 9-11, did not join with those, some of them within the administration, who were saying, what a great moment to bring down Saddam Hussein. Cheney started out with that amount of restraint. Um, to an unprecedented degree, though, as, as the war in Afghanistan, the war against the uh, al-Qaeda enclaves there and the Taliban regime uh, unfolded, issues arose that simply had to be dealt with, issues that, that hadn't arisen in, in, in wars uh, of a more conventional kind. One of those was, what do you do with the enemy combatants whom you capture? They're not soldiers in uniform. On the other hand, they, they're acting like soldiers in uniform. Cheney advised closely by his counsel, David Addington, in effect ran roughshod over the White House counsel, counsel uh, Alberto Gonzalez, because Cheney and Addington had thought about this a lot more than Gonzalez had, in making the argument that uh, um, uh, enemy combatants captured in this war on terror should be tried, should could be could be detained indefinitely, and should be tried in in military tribunals created exclusively under the president's authority. He took Cheney took a, a, a memo to Bush to that effect. Um, at lunch one day, got Bush to sign it, and, and, and there it was. As far as the war in Iraq goes, like most U.S. officials, as well as the intelligence agencies of most nations around the world, Cheney was convinced that Saddam Hussein had for some time been stockpiling weapons of mass destruction. He frequently expressed to the president his concern that Cheney was sharing those WMDs with al-Qaeda, which he was sure would try to use them against the United States. Although little in the way of reliable intelligence confirmed Cheney's suspicions of an Iraq-al-Qaeda connection, he remembered from his days in the White House and as Secretary of Defense how wrong the intelligence agencies had been in 1990 about Saddam Hussein's intention to invade Kuwait. So when, when people say, well, what about all this intelligence um, that indicated that uh, from the CIA that, that, that cast doubt on Iraq's involvement with al-Qaeda, um, Iraq's possession of, of WMDs, Cheney was, was, from his own memory, thinking the CIA is, is perfectly capable, almost predictably capable, of getting things wrong, of not anticipating catastrophic events that are about to happen. They didn't, the CIA didn't predict that, that Hussein would invade uh, Kuwait in 1990. The CIA didn't see the, the, the fall of the Soviet Union coming. The CIA simply didn't, didn't know Al-Qaeda was going to 
hit us. Cheney didn't regard the advice of the intelligence experts as as sufficiently expert to um, uh, to, to follow. Cheney, within the administration, uh, continued to argue against seeking resolutions from the United Nations or Congress to authorize both wars. He lost both arguments, but I think the true verdict on Cheney's role in, in encouraging President Bush to launch a war against Iraq was well stated um, by, the, by the scholars Ivo Dalder and James Lindsay, who say that Bush, quote, chose to take Colin Powell's route to Cheney's goal. In other words, go through the hoops of seeking a congressional resolution, go to the United Nations, but with the which Colin Powell was advising. But understand that no matter what road you take, it needs to lead to an invasion of Iraq. <coughs> Cheney's goal, he was willing to tolerate Powell's methods of getting to that goal, but no more than that. Well, the second term has not gone well for Dick Cheney, partly because it hasn't gone well for President George W. Bush, to whom, like any vice president, to whom his fortunes are inextricably tied. Um, Cheney contributed to some extent to his own problems. He went on, on the Larry King live show in 2005 and then again in the middle of 2006 and both times predicted that the insurgency uh, against uh, American forces in Iraq was about to end. He was, he was wildly out of touch with reality on the ground. Um, his, uh, his closest associate on his staff, Scooter Libby, was indicted and then convicted uh, for obstruction of justice. The incident in which Cheney, um, out hunting, shot his friend Harry Whittington, by itself, not a terribly important incident, but you remember what a big story that became for this reason. The way Cheney conducted himself uh, in that incident seemed to conform to people's growing negative stereotypes of Cheney. He was secretive and, and, and prone to the use of violence, uh, it seemed. Um, let me say just three things by way of conclusion of, of, of this talk about Richard Cheney as vice president. First of all, he was the most influential vice president in history. I don't think I need to say another word on that point. Second, because Cheney's loyalty to the president was undivided by personal ambition, it's fair to say he was the least politically ambitious vice president in history. The certain knowledge that Cheney's name would never appear on a ballot again sometimes, though, made him reckless in his disregard for public opinion. To Cheney, the worst four-letter word that you could use in his presence began with P. Poll. For somebody to tell Cheney the poll show that this or that is unpopular drew his contemptuous dismissal. And, and somebody who knows he's never going to be on, on a ballot again, never go before the voters again, is the only kind of person who is in a position to write off public opinion that way. And then finally, Cheney's final superlative was to become the most unpopular vice president in modern history. Again, this was partly an artifact of Bush's second term unpopularity, but only partly. The public came to regard Cheney as being uniquely powerful but with no concern for his political future, utterly indifferent to their opinions. 
They were right on both counts. Thank you very much.